Hey, it's Ralph here. Q1 is now closing and it probably didn't go as well as you had hoped, but I'm sure your agency is probably telling you that they crushed it. But in reality, it crushed you. If your agency isn't on the same page as you are, if there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on what that thing is, go on over to tier11.com forward slash apply. It will set you up on a call to show you a better way to look at your business, not just metrics that make us agencies look good, but something that actually moves the needle and makes you more money, acquires more new customers, and ultimately achieves your vision. Head on over to tier11.com forward slash apply today. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic. Welcome to the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. This is the show where we share cutting edge strategies on acquiring leads and sales for your business through paid traffic. Today's conversation is with someone who actually helped build Google Ads. He was one of Google's first 500 employees, He's been doing PPC for over 20 years, and he's the co-founder of Optimizer, a PPC optimization tool that automatically improves your campaigns. Whether or not you do a ton of Google advertising doesn't matter. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation because he does a phenomenal job at explaining where advertising is going in the future. But before we get into the interview, I have a confession. We've done over 300 episodes, and I can't remember a time when we weren't in the top charts. But I just looked last week, and we fell out of the top 50. I was shocked. Now, it sounds like vanity, but it's not at all. These charts help people find the shows that they're going to listen to. They also give our sponsors a bit more confidence, and it helps keep our show free. I know there's a ton of podcasts out there, and they're all looking for ways to make you pay. We want to keep this show free and accessible to everybody. So if you've gotten any value from the show over the years, can you please go to whatever app you listen to, hit the subscribe button, and leave a rating telling others how much you've enjoyed the show. And if you're one of the people that's already done that, thank you. We are eternally grateful. We're going to dive right into the interview with Fred right after a quick word from some of our supporters. Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, Influence and Persuasion, I swear you are missing so much in your digital marketing, not only as an influencer and an advertiser, but as just a great marketer. And that's why I'm so excited to invite you to a free webinar where he'll be sharing his latest insights on new e-commerce strategies. Now, alongside Dr. Cialdini, you'll learn from Bass Wouters and the authors of Reputation King, my buddy Scott Branley and DJ Sprague. Attendees will absolutely be able to understand exactly how to gain a competitive edge in the marketplace by leveraging online reputation management. Now, that's something that we haven't talked about here on this show all that much. And it's more reason for you to register for the webinar here, which is completely free over at reputationking.com forward slash PT. So join us on April 18th from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific for you West Coasters by registering at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Once again, that's reputationking.com forward slash PT. Cialdini has been a huge influence on me. and I can't wait to see how his new e-commerce strategies resonate with you and how they affect your business in a positive way using reputation management. Make sure that you register for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. 
Hello and welcome to the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. This is your host, Ralph Burns, and this is episode 322. And I'm here alongside virtually my awesome co-host, Qasem Aslam from Arizona. How you doing, buddy? Living the dream, Ralph. How you doing? Every day. Same thing. You know, how can you not be excited just to get up every single day and just do digital marketing stuff? And then we get on this show and we talk about digital marketing stuff and especially to really, really smart people. Like that's what I love about this show. Having people that are way smarter than me and maybe even you, I don't know about you, but Fred is definitely one of those types of people. And I think you know him a heck of a lot better than I do. So I'll leave the introduction to you here, Kasim, but we're pretty excited to have Fred Valets on today's show. This guy is a legend and we're going to be talking some pretty highly technical stuff. So if you're a tech person, especially if it comes to the Google side of the equation of traffic, today is the show for you. So Kasim, tell us a little bit more about our guest today. Yeah, I've, I've got mixed feelings on Fred. You know, on one <laughs> hand, he's like the digital marketing tip of the spear. The guy invented conversion tracking in Google Ads, no joke. So if you were using, it's the most powerful facet of the Google Ads ecosystem. When are you going to do something it? with your life, Fred? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> he was employee 430 some odd at Google. He bought Google Analytics on behalf of Google. So he's the reason we have all the data that we have. Okay. So like on one hand, he's the, he's the godfather of digital marketing. But then on the other hand, he's building Skynet. <laughs> like he's literally trying to automate all of us out of a job. So it's just such a love-hate thing I have going. And, and, and I'm, I'm, being, I'm being mildly facetious, obviously. Fred, you're brilliant. I'm a big fan. I got a, a super big kick out of being able to interview you the first time. Happy to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, Ralph, thank you for having me on your show. Very honored to be uh, on episode 322. I can't believe how many you've been doing. It's crazy. I can't believe it took us 321 episodes to get you on the show. I mean... I know. You, you've been begging, but I finally... <laughs> finally <laughs> relented. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He poked his head out of the Skynet lab just for an hour or so for us today. So it's great. Appreciate that. Yeah, I've got a drop. I, I guess I should have mentioned that Ralph is now the founder and CEO of Optimizer, which is and Ralph, how would, I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to do my best to introduce Optimizer and then you can correct me. This is a software application that acts as an overlay to Google Ads that helps you automate certain facets of Google Ads management, thereby making it more efficient and scalable. How did I do? Exactly. I think you said Ralph was the founder. Oh, sorry, Fred. Yeah, I like to give. I like to yeah, give. I, yeah, I like to give that. credit to you know, like we slowly migrated over to us. Maybe right? me and Fred yeah, can exactly. change places. Yeah, that's, that's a really good description. So I came out of Google, right? And what's the easiest way to make a, a quick buck when you have just been spending ten years of your life at the mothership, basically consulting? And so I'm out there, and I like I got all these great strategies and these great ways to drive more traffic. And I've been building stuff like the ads editor, acquiring Google Analytics, Urchin at the time, of course. And it's like, oh my God, I thought we did such an amazing job within Google to make it super easy to put these best practices into play, but actually they're super time consuming. And like, yeah, I can talk to 10 customers a day and tell them all these great things that I could do, but then to implement them, some things took me multiple weeks. Like we were talking to customers about how to set up the perfect shopping campaign structure. And then it took me literally four weeks of building that structure. And I was like, I could probably write like 100 lines of code and just have it done in 30 minutes. Maybe that's my next, right? And then that's where Optimizer came out because honestly, there's so many things that all of us are struggling with when it comes to time, when it comes to implementing strategies. And that's just what we want to help make easier for our customers. Yeah, that's so I appreciate that context. And I had unique opportunity of, of reading your soon to be released book. What's the title of that, Fred? 
Yeah, so it's unleveling the playing field and how to basically get an edge in digital marketing when everything else is uh, automated. And I like you offer a formula in the book. You say humans plus machines are greater than machines alone. Right. And so that my second book, this is my second book, right? The first book was digital marketing in an AI world. And the second book very much builds on it. But it was this whole premise that, what was it now, like three, four, five years ago, advertisers and digital marketing professionals were just really scared because everything Google kept doing was like, hey, here's another automation. Like, you don't need to do bidding anymore. Okay. Hey, now you don't need to do ads anymore. We got responsive search ads. Oh, and by the way, the keywords that you've been doing for like the past 20 years of your lives, well, exact match, it doesn't really work anymore. So don't really bother too much with keywords. And so there's this huge fear in the industry of, well, what am I going to do? Like, I've been working for 20 years on digital marketing. Like, is there something else I can do if the machine just completely takes over? And so that was raising these questions. And so I started thinking about it, reading about it talking to a lot of advertisers. And it was really Gary Kasparov, when he was playing chess against the, the Deep Blue supercomputer from IBM, who found out that humans plus machines actually are better than machines alone. And I can tell you a story about Gary Kasparov that a lot of people, you know, unless you read Wired magazine, probably haven't really been exposed to. But, but, but here's the story, right? So IBM said, we're going to build the best chess playing computer in the world. And so they set out to achieve this. And a couple of weeks before the, the match against Gary Kasparov, who was the grandmaster at the time, they're like, oh my God, the computer's not ready. Like, we've bitten off way more than we can chew. What do we do? And the engineers were like, well, we can still win this game, but we have to redefine the problem. It's no longer about being the best chess playing computer in the world. It's about being the best at beating Gary Kasparov. And when they narrowed the problem to that degree, all of a sudden they could do it. Now the media picked up on this and they were like, Computers are better at playing chess than humans. But that wasn't true. They were really good at one very specific problem they had been trained on. And so that's when Gary Kasparov started doing all this research. And he said, well, listen, if I have a computer at my disposal, at my disposal, I can just calculate way more probabilities. Like I can do some of this uh, data crunching the computer can do, but I still bring the strategy. I still have the insight. I've you know kind of been through this before. I already know which paths of potential victory are not going to open up, right? So I can narrow in on the right solution and I can be better. And I think that really applies to PPC and digital marketing in many ways as well. Yeah, so I love that story. And I also told you before the interview started that I think you and I probably, now that I've had the chance to read your book, I think we agree more than we disagree. Because I like that you see it in the human element. A lot of a lot of the the organizations that are in the seat that you're in, building automation, are relying very heavily on the narrative that it's going to be 100% automated at some point and you're working people out of the picture and you don't seem to have taken that seat. I'm curious I'm curious as to why. Like how long until you think humans truly just aren't necessary at all or does that ever happen in the world of PPC specifically? I mean like in the world at large you probably get to a point where we just have to and then let, let me quote another really smart person, all right? So Larry Page, one of the two co-founders of Google, he basically gave a talk, I think it was at Davos a couple of years ago, and, and he said that people could have their standard of living that they're used to in just, even if they work like an hour a week, right? Because there's so much productivity gains, there's so much technology that if we decided to really embrace that, we could be at the status quo and have a lot more free time. But that's just not human nature, right? Humans get satisfaction out of working, and so we strive to always find things to do. 
And there's also progress and innovation, right? So if we just stay at the status quo in a way, we're not happy with that either. And so it's this dichotomy of what is it we're really trying to achieve? And so I think for that reason, humans will continue to play a role and they will find things to bring to the machine and make things better, but we don't really have to. And so I think if you're a digital marketer, it also opens up two interesting possibilities. Are you the person who wants to be really productive with a lot of technology, a lot of tools, and spend a lot of time at the beach, right? So you do your work. It's the four-hour work week, basically. Or do you embrace the technology and, and, and then bring your human aptitude to that and figure out how to unlevel the playing field? And that's exactly what that second book is about, right? Like we all have the same tools now, so we could all go to the beach and not do very much work anymore and let the machines handle it. But our clients come to us because they don't want to be average. They want to beat their competition. And so what is it that the human can bring to that? Right. So that's kind of the basic premise of, of the book is, is that humans will have something to do. And what it is that we do, that's going to evolve. If you don't like evolution, if you don't like retraining, if you don't like changing the work that you do, then digital marketing is probably not going to be an amazing field for you. But if you thrive on that change, then this is a fantastic field. Well, so I think you're absolutely speaking to the choir at the moment because all of our listeners have had, the, you know, if they haven't gone through it personally, they've gone through it by proxy through us. Ralph has, I think, the best and most respected Facebook agency on the planet. Facebook just went through, I know you know, the iOS 14 update, which basically changed the entire Facebook advertising ecosystem, flipped it on its head. And Facebook just released information saying that they're rebuilding and we're not sure how or in what context. How concerned would you be about the same thing happening in the Google sphere? Like I know Flock is coming out, but Flock is self-imposed. So iOS 14 happened to Facebook. You know, it was, it was pushed by a third-party entity. Flock is something that Google's doing itself. But I imagine there could be like you know congressional oversight or some you know weird jiggy type of legislation or a context change in terms of the way that the, the internet is even accessed. And and because you're building something that lives on top of Google, if Google gets shook, then the application that you're building shakes along with it, right? If if Google sneezes, you catch a cold. So What's the, the outlook there? And then how do you mitigate that risk? Yeah, I mean, so I think you're right. There's all of this push towards privacy. And this is one of the fundamental truths of digital marketing today. This is one of the things that causes continuous change. But I think it's also interesting to have the historical perspective. And I suppose that's like me being, you know, such an old timer in the PPC industry, like people might find history boring. But let's add it for a bit of perspective, right? So I think Google... And AdWords specifically, um, now called Google Ads, was invented in a day when machine learning was not at a stage where it was doing very much. And if it was doing something, it wasn't doing it very well. And so by necessity, Google came up with a system that said, hey, advertiser, you pick the keywords, you set your bid, you write one specific ad text or multiple ad texts, but you have to tell us exactly what it needs to say when the ad shows on the page, right? So you're in control, you set the geo targets, every little button and dial, you're in control. You have to do it because the machines just can't. Now, Facebook comes along many years later. The state of machine learning of artificial intelligence is much further along, partly thanks to Moore's law, faster computers, more data having been ingested. And so Facebook can do some of these things. And, and Ralph, I would love to hear your perspective, right? But, uh, but like automation was sort of the status quo or what was how Facebook was born. So I think the expectation of a Facebook advertiser and a Google Ads advertiser are dramatically different. And a lot of what Google is having to do is being propped up by these original advertisers who said, well, I mean, you let me choose a keyword in the past. Why can't I choose my keyword anymore? 
And so Google's trying to bridge that gap and saying, well, we don't really need you to choose a keyword because our machines can now do it pretty well for you. But if you do care enough, like here's still a, a way to do it. And so now you have, again, these two sorts of Google ad systems that compete with each other. You have, you know, a smart shopping campaign and a regular shopping campaign. You know, one has the benefit of being fully automated. The other has a lot more control. But which do you choose? Right. And, and these are the questions you have to answer. And that, by the way, is why the humans are so important, because you come into Google ads and you say, oh, I'm going to do automated bidding. Well, good for you, buddy. But which of the seven types are you going to choose and why? <laughs> right. And you have to have an answer for that. And you have to understand when to switch and, and how to measure it correctly and how to have all the prerequisites, because some of these automated bidding systems, they don't work really well if you didn't set up a bunch of things ahead of time to help it. Yeah, that's well said. And you know, one thing that Ralph's team has done really well is specifically in the, in the place of conversion architecture, and then also looking at what happens after the click, which I don't think most marketers, I don't think most marketers pay attention to that. I think we're like, okay, we drove the traffic, we created a lead, we're done, you know, wipe my hands and walk away. So Ralph, I'd be interested in your opinion on what you think automation can do to help the post-click acquisition and whether or not there's a way to connect the dots. And maybe Fred can help us, you know, merge those two thoughts if they can be merged. It just really seems to me that, I mean, we have a Google division and we've had one now for about a, a year plus. And the automation side for Google is just so much more advanced than Facebook is. I mean, I think maybe it was Kasim who says they have 2 million points of data on every user, whereas Facebook only has, I don't know, 40,000 or whatever it happens to be. Whatever the number is, it's definitely, it's not the same by any stretch. And we just see that Facebook itself, the machine, the corporation, the Facebook company, we have a very close relationship with them. Most of their advice to us is let the machine do its job. Whereas it's not just that easy. It, it just, we, you know, we still have, you know, touchy ad campaigns. It's like we can't really let the machine just do its job. We do do it to a certain degree, but to the degree I think that Google either advocates for full optimization using AI and all the data points that they have versus what Facebook advocates for, it's very different to, to a degree, like a, I would say by a, about a 10x degree. So Facebook says, all right, just go broad audiences and have really good targeting and just don't touch anything. Have really big budgets, go after your CPA and let the machine do its thing. Well, there's still going to be ad sets and ads and so forth that we're going to have to turn off just because as a performance-based marketing agency like we are, we can't really afford to have that happen. We can't wait. And even if we do wait, oftentimes we don't see the machine learning really being advantageous from a conversion perspective. Whereas on the Google side, there seems like there's far more of it. And I think now uh, in the age of iOS, you're also looking at far less data points in which the machine can actually utilize in order to get that optimized result. So even more so, our media buyers are more important today, I think, than they ever were. I mean, I know a lot of my team listens to this show, but if there was a way for us to scale and grow as an agency without hiring thousands of media buyers, I would certainly do it. I would get the best media buyers in the world and then have automation tools to allow them to leverage the algorithm as best as possible with not much touching. But that really hasn't happened yet on Facebook. I think they think they're, but I think they're very far off. Whereas I think Google is far closer, especially with you know what I've been exposed to in the last year or so now being back in the platform. That's actually where I started 15 years ago as Google pay-per-click and 
all the other ones that were are now defunct. But yeah, I, I see it as different. But they're both going in the same direction. I just think Google is way ahead. <laughs> and you know, why wouldn't they be? I mean, their platform is older, so it makes a whole lot more sense. And they had you, Fred, way early on. So you know, that was an unfair advantage. Fine. Thank you. <laughs> I get way more credit than I deserve. But uh, yeah, no, these are all good points, right? I mean, you bring up the, the Google tax, the Facebook tax, which is basically the machine learning tax. And that's kind of what's... So see, Google comes at it from this perspective. Like, There's so many advertisers who just don't know what they need to do, but they want to advertise online and, and they have to advertise online. I mean, look at the way the market shifted in the last two years with so many people stuck at home and like lives being upended. So much commerce is happening online. So even small businesses need to be there, but they don't have the expertise. They don't have the time. And thankfully for them, machine learning from Google and to some degree, Facebook, it's really there. It can figure these things out for you. But like you said, I mean, yeah, you do have to spend a thousand bucks of like wasted clicks to to help the machine kind of like build a picture of what's what's going on here. What's this advertiser all about? Like who's a good audience for them? Can I challenge that briefly, Fred? Not, not, and, and so peel me back a little bit because we invited you to the show and I don't want to like just attack. But I also want to get us to somewhere where our listeners can have like, you know, tangible actions to move forward. I've got a Google Ads agency. We have 160 clients. The average client spends less than 10 grand a month. Some of them are spending two and three. My experience has been that unless you're spending tens of thousands of dollars a month, machine learning doesn't have the juice that it takes that it would need in order to really narrow down on what works. Like if you're in the sub 10 grand a month spend, which is most small businesses, I think, you have to buttress it. There needs to be, you know, it's like you're bowling with bumpers because if you don't, they'll never actually get there. Everybody ends up stopping three feet from gold because they don't have the threshold for pain. They don't have the time. They don't have uh, the ability to spend into an ecosystem that would allow the machine to really narrow down. So you just said like spend a thousand dollars to figure out what's working and maybe I'm doing it wrong. Like I'd be receptive to that narrative. Well, yeah. And I, I named the number. Okay. So oftentimes sure. it's not a thousand. It could be significantly higher than that. And I think the answer here is evolving too. So there's many layers to this. So first of all, like you have these small advertisers and they go on to some level of automation and day two, they get a conversion and they're so excited and they're like, oh my God, the system works. And then they're willing to put in the next 5,000, even if that doesn't lead to another conversion because they've gotten like the taste, <laughs> right? They know it's... <laughs> they're gambling now. <laughs> they've gone to the slot machine and they hit once. Exactly, but that's what it is, right? And on the flip side, that same advertiser, if they'd spent the 5,000 before getting the same conversion, right, they would have already dropped off because they said, this is all BS, this is not working, it's not for me, Google doesn't know what they're doing. But at the end of the day, both of these advertisers would have had the same cost per acquisition. And over time, hopefully that cost per acquisition would have become more reasonable. But so I think that's the first thing that we need to communicate as agencies to these advertisers, right? Like you got to be ready to put in some level of money to, to get there. And then what you're saying about buttressing the system, that's exactly it. I mean, that's the human benefit. Like Google will figure it out, right? And they're getting better and better at figuring it out. And I'll give you an example of that in just a second. But yeah, they should, they should absolutely hire Ralph and hire you because, you know, pay you guys $5,000 so Google doesn't have to learn it. And by the way, there's much more value that you bring because you've worked with other customers in this space, you know, all the little tricks, right? And then that's the value that humans bring. Now, the, the amazing thing about Google getting better and better at figuring things out is, for example, with smart shopping campaigns, they used to require something like 20 conversions in 30 days before you could turn it on. Now, 
the requirement is zero conversions over the past 30 days. And so it's like, well, wait, you're going to do my automated bidding and automated targeting based off of never having seen anything convert? Like, how does that work? And that's maybe what Ralph was alluding to, but Google has so much data, right? And they look across advertisers, so they will know, oh, you know, Fred is selling a bunch of sneakers. And hey, we've seen Adidas, we've seen Nike, we've seen all these other sell sneakers, and we kind of like know these 2 million data points about every user. So we don't need to know about Fred's conversion rates to kind of guess that, oh, products are similar. We can look at his website. We can look at his price points. So we can sort of figure this out. And they're always getting better and better at that. Yeah. I'm of the opinion that at the moment, Google has left small businesses behind. I think they'll come back for them. And I'll say for us, because I'm a small business too. I have seen automation and smart bidding work for some smaller budgets, but not to the same degree. I mean, if you've got 50K a month, it's only a matter of time. It's truly only, you know, you just tell Google, like, here's my credit card, here's my URL, here's the conversion action I'm going for, and they will get there. It's unbelievable. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen with outbound display, selling education. But if you don't have that, then you really have to be very strategic. And that's what scares me is there's a lot of people that they've been, they've been burned and they're not willing to come back. What do you say to that advertiser that's like tried it, failed, and now they're just like, oh, this can't work for me? Yeah, I mean, try it again, right? Like, and, and, and that's where you have to try to explain to them the pace at which technology is improving. And you have to explain to them stuff like Moore's Law. So every 18 months, roughly, computing capacity doubles. And Google's at the cutting edge of this, right? So Google is basically has supercomputers running these auctions for you, doing all of these simulations, the machine learning. And so talk to some of the experts, right? And five, well, now maybe like seven years ago, we would all have said, well, automated bidding, it's kind of mediocre. I can probably do a better job myself. But nowadays, many people will say, yeah, Google's way ahead of me when it comes to automated bidding. So let them figure out that because because the investment that companies like Google and Facebook make in the number of engineers, like the number of computers, these are massive, massive projects. And one example of that, so... What was the company called? But Google was DeepMind. Google bought this British company that was playing the game of Go. I don't play it. You guys probably don't play it either. Uh, It's like the Chinese version of chess, right? But more complex. More complex. And so it's complex to the degree that there are more possible combinations on the game board than there are atoms in the universe. Wow. So let that sink in for a minute, right? Okay. And so now the, the computer's job is... And generally, when we think about chess, well, it's about like play this potential move and then every next move that can happen from that. And so computers are really good at that because they can play through, you know, billions of moves into the future and sort of figure out what's likely to lead me to the the best path. When you start talking about more more possibilities and atoms in the universe, it's like, well, okay, now even computers start to struggle with that, that problem. But Google sort of figured it out. And in the first iteration, they spent, I think it was over $100 million on the technology, and then they beat the uh, the human champion chess player. They beat him in a, like a five-game series. And what they had done is they had taken all of the games that had been played by humans in the past, and not all of the games, but a decent number of games, and they'd fed that into the machine and said, okay, go and learn from this how to play. Right, And, and they did this probably like five years ago. And then... In less than two years after that, after they had solved this tremendously difficult problem, they had come up with a new solution, which they had built at a tenth of the cost in a fraction of the time and without any human inputs. So it no longer was looking at games that had been played in the past. It had literally said, 
here's how you win the game. Here's, here's what it means to win. Go and play against yourself and, and learn. And in less than two years, the machine was so good that it beat the old system. Hey, it's Kasim here, and I have a question for you. What if you could legally get the emails of almost every person who visits your website? Now, I know that sounds crazy, but seriously, what if you could safely and respectfully target your website visitors via email just by dropping a pixel onto your site? It might sound too good to be true, but our new sponsors at getemails.com can do just that. They've created a system that's compliant with U.S. laws and regulations, and every email address they send you is opted in to receive emails. That means you can connect your anonymous website visitors to real people and then safely retarget them through email with real-time, fully compliant interactions. I've personally met the CEO, Adam Robinson, and the guy is absolutely brilliant. And he believes in his product so much that he's willing to do something a little crazy for PT listeners. If you are an e-commerce brand that's doing over a million in annual revenue and you've gone through their easy 30-minute onboarding process, if you don't 5X your investment within the first six months, they will give you all of your money back. To take advantage of this offer, go to getemails.com forward slash scalable. That's getemails.com forward slash scalable. Hey, PT listeners, when's the last time your business published on its blog? If the answer is, that's way too long for me to remember, I want you to listen up because our friends at BKA Content have a new service where they'll deliver fresh blogs to your inbox and all you have to do is just post them on your site. Now, these articles are all originally written just for your business. They're not generic articles that are just copy and pasted or thrown into some AI software or written by a VA. No, these are professional writers who are going to sit down and write articles just for your business. We've used them in the past, and they're absolutely fabulous. Now, if you want an extra reason to go try them yourself, BK is giving PT listeners half off their first month. Just go to bkacontent.com forward slash perpetual to get started. That's bkacontent.com forward slash perpetual. By a score of 100 to zero. So this poses its own issue, though. This So here, let's say that you're right, and I think you are. Like someday computers, you know, basically take over and we don't need the PPC manager anymore in the button pushing sense, right? You probably still need maybe some creative, some strategy, some whatever. But here's my other issue. And this is actually terrifying. Google is a for-profit organization and Google, just like any other organization, has inventory, right? So they have a certain amount of search inventory, a certain amount of display inventory. And this is the only commercial context I have ever seen. And somebody tell me if there's something that I'm missing, where the person selling the inventory has full visibility into everybody who wants to buy the inventory what they're willing to spend on that inventory, and what they make. Google knows what you make because you're giving it target CPA, target ROAS. You're giving it offline conversion tracking. Now, with the new conversion values, which are nuts to me, by the way, you're telling it roughly what it is you think this customer is worth through long term. So with this machine learning, Google doesn't want a competitive ecosystem. They don't want a meritocratic ecosystem to where one entity or person or whatever wins. What they want, what they would have to want, by definition, would be the most productive use of their inventory. So they'd say, okay, I have you know X amount of inventory. I have 10 advertisers. I know what all of them make. I know what all of them spend. And I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find the machine learning driven formula that gets me the most amount of money for this inventory while keeping them on the hook for the longest, like a bunch of freaking drug addicts coming back to the tap saying, hit me again, hit me again, hit me again. So we're actually like 
enslaving ourselves to this entity because we're giving it complete and total control. And uh, yeah, if you haven't watched the movie Social Dilemma, like us, like coming back from a little more of uh, dopamine that we crave, great movie, scary movie, Social Dilemma. And, you know, I, I can't argue that point completely with you, Kasim. So there's definitely something to that. And I think what makes this complicated, too, is that you have three players in the ecosystem, right? You have the advertisers, the publishers, and the users. And so obviously, like you said, having one advertiser win it all the time, well, that's going to make for a fairly boring landscape to users, right? The users like choice. They like going to the Safeway cereal aisle and having at least a few options to choose from. So Google has to build that trade-off. And, and like, yes, maybe General Mills would have paid more money, but people also like uh, you know, Nature's Path and a different type of cereal. So we need to we need to keep them on the page to introduce that variety and, and even create a little bit of competition. Because at one point, you know, Google was writing ads automatically for uh, for entire verticals, like restaurants especially. And the problem was the machine was like steering itself towards everyone had the same ad. It's a singularity. It's all just the same thing at one point. Exactly. It was just like the, the name of the restaurant and the cuisine is different, but everything else is the same. And so you get to the singularity or you get to this like point in evolution where the natural variation that supports evolution has stopped. And so Google is having to weigh all of these things to to create that ecosystem that's vibrant, that's healthy. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you're right. Like Google is a for-profit entity and has to uh, figure out a way to balance these these factors. And maybe that's why, you know, where the privacy regulation is coming in and the oversight that the government wants to put on uh, on all of this. And I'd actually love to hear Ralph's point because, like, didn't Facebook, Congress told them, hey, you guys got to sell Instagram and, like, diversify and, like, WhatsApp. And now I think they're backtracking on that. And it's, like, <laughs> it's these co- complicated problems and the, the solutions might seem easy, but then unintended consequences, right? These are big, difficult, gnarly problems. I don't hear you refuting Cosm's uh, allegations here. <laughs> 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 I like the deferring off to me, but I'm still like, I can answer that question, but like, it makes a whole lot of sense. Like just give everybody just a little bit of the hit of the crack or the dopamine or whatever it happens to be. So they all stay in the game because at the end of the day, I mean, I don't know like what the proportion of small business, the average spend on Google ads is versus Facebook. I know Facebook is definitely skewed towards the major advertisers, but pay-per-click, something tells me like on the Google network, just in general, it's the little advertiser that you that is the majority of revenue. And if that is the case, then it would definitely make sense on what... All I do is just follow the money, quite honestly, is what Kasim is saying. That is not the case. That's so not the case. That is not the case. Okay. So small advertisers... Small advertisers built AdWords, but they're no longer the bread and butter of AdWords. And so the, kind of the explanation of that, and again, mm. let's go down history lane here for a second. But when I joined Google in 2002, we had just come out with a system called AdWords. So there was AdWords, and then there was AdWords Select. And then traditional AdWords eventually became AdWords Premium to distinguish between Select and Premium. Premium was basically brand advertisers, like your really big companies who made traditional ad buying decisions, I would say, well, we're willing to spend a $20 cost per mille, $20 CPM to show at the top of the search results page. And then Salar Kamangar, he was like, well, what about if we open up the space on the right-hand side and we actually auction off, we auction off 
that ad inventory, right? So it's not on a CPM basis, but we're going to take a cost per click. And then we're going to use the click-through rate, which is kind of a relevancy indicator. And we're going to combine the cost per click and the CTR. And by the way, if you multiply CTR and CPC, you get cost per mille, you get CPM. So it's the same thing, but it's an auction-driven way of doing the CPM results that also prioritize relevance on the page. And so that's, that, that was the small advertisers going into that because that was the only thing they had access to. They couldn't call an account rep and say, hey, just give me the top of the page, even though it's actually really cheap compared to what we have to pay in the auction. Right? And so that's, that's what came out. And then Google was like, oh, yeah, we're a for-profit organization. And now the people on the right-hand side are actually paying us way more than the people on the top. So the little guys are paying way more than the, the big brands. So let's put everyone on that select system where it's a cost-per-click auction. And so that really built AdWords and that made Google a tremendous financial success. But then over time, AdWords just became more and more complicated. And like Kasim is saying, it's, uh, you know, a lot of advertisers fell by the wayside because they couldn't figure it out. Too many buttons and dials. And there were some decisions made at Google along the way where we said, we want to have one ad system, right? Maybe we should have an ad system for the travel vertical and a different one for retailers and a different one for all these industries. But we said, no, we're going to keep one system. And maybe that was to the detriment of some, uh, some of the advertisers. But, uh, but yeah, nowadays, most, I mean, there's advertisers spending in excess of half a billion dollars a year, Google ads. And you can imagine that it takes, it takes a lot of small advertisers to pay half a billion dollars a year. And that's not just one advertiser paying half a billion a year. So it's skewing towards the big ones. For sure. So you're, so that answers that question. The question is, does Google parse out the, you know, the placement on pay-per-click and the effectiveness of pay-per-click? Okay, so we're just really talking about pay-per-click here. But I mean, of their advertising to allow as many advertisers to survive in the ecosystem with not one specifically winning the inordinate amount of, of ways. Exactly. And so like auction depth is a really important metric that companies like Google will look at, Facebook too, right? But it's it's basically, I mean, in, a, in an auction, whether it's an ads auction or an auction for a piece of art, the way that you get higher prices, it's not just by having one big spender in that room, but by having lots of people who are willing to start bidding and create that competition and maybe push people to make irrational decisions in an auction that they shouldn't have made. But auction depth for that reason is so important, right? How many people are competing on this keyword or for that audience member? Um, and that's really what drives financial success in many cases for these companies. So if you were to be put on the spot and say, how do you collaborate with the machines <laughs> as best as possible or instead of competing against them so that you get the better results that you're looking for for your marketing? How would you do it knowing what you know about all the stuff behind the scenes? Like what would be the answer? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so Kasim was sort of alluding to the point that it's a fully transparent marketplace where Google knows all of your data. And I would actually argue that a little bit. And so, yes, in, in some cases, Google does know it because the advertiser has exposed all of it. But I think in many cases, the advertiser hasn't. Now, whether you believe this is the wrong thing or the right thing, one way to make the machines better at their job and to set a better bid for you is to actually tell them what your true goal is. And I would argue, and I probably won't get a lot of pushback on this one, is that many advertisers are not very good at setting goals and communicating what it is they actually achieve in terms of getting a conversion. 
right? And let me give you a simple example. So you got a form fill, you're, you're selling new windows, okay? So you want to get someone to the landing page and to fill out that you're interested in getting your windows fixed and you want a price quote. Filling out that form for many advertisers, that is the conversion. And then they say to Google, okay, well, I've got a $100 cost per acquisition target on this, go and bid. Great. Now you get all these leads and the next thing you know, you know, you, you put in an automated bidding and Google's getting you way more leads than before somehow, but none of these leads are actually buying windows. Like when you call them up, they don't answer the phone. When you go to their house, they're like, oh my God, this is way too expensive, right? So, and that's the thing you actually care about is how many jobs right. do I get? How much revenue do I drive from those jobs? And that's the missing piece in many, in many cases. And that's why stuff like uh, value rules, offline conversion import, value adjustments are so important because those are the, the fundamental pieces that feed into the machine learning to say, all conversions are not created equal. We actually want more of this type of conversion. And then the machine can go and get that for you, right? So yeah, but so there's a very, very big difference between offline conversion tracking and conversion value rules. And I'm going to do my best to define these for our listeners, Fred, and then, and then you, hopefully you can scaff because you're way smarter than I am at this stuff. You probably invented half of it. Offline conversion tracking lets you take a conversion. So somebody came in and they bought a $5 product for me. And then, you know, 6, 9, 12, 18 months later, they bought another 10 bucks or another 100 bucks or another 1,000 bucks. I can take that data and I can give it back to Google. And I can say, hey, Fred bought 5 bucks in the beginning, but he's actually bought more since then this individual prospect is worth, you know, X much more. Is that, how is that for a definition so far? Yeah. I mean, so you're, you're talking a little bit about lifetime value. Um, yep. And so the, the restriction offline conversion import or offline conversion tracking as Google's kind of renaming it. It has a 90 day limit on the window. And, and so the more typical use case of it would be someone filled out that lead form within that 90 day time frame, you actually have tracked that lead as having spoken to it and maybe qualified it. So that becomes another type of lead, uh, a conversion type. And then still within that 90-day window, now that person actually goes and purchases the windows. That's yet another conversion type. And so you have now three conversion types, the, the form fill, the qualified lead, and actual customer. And that's what offline conversion generally facilitates. So it's, it's mostly done through CRMs to add additional conversion points in the system. As far as restating conversion values, there's a lesser known system, which is actually easier to use. I'm a bit surprised not that many advertisers seem to use it, but it's called conversion value adjustment. So value adjustment. And that one is a bit more as to what you're talking about, right? So the customer bought $5 worth of something, and then within some time frame they buy more, or they actually return stuff. You can restate the value that you've assigned to that conversion. So instead of saying it was $5, maybe you say it was actually only $0 because they returned everything. Or they bought $5, they loved it, they bought two more. So now it's $15 of value that was derived from that. So that, that's kind of how I would position them. Okay, very well said. And I think both of those have merit in my mind because you're taking the individual prospect. You're saying, Fred came into my site, he bought this thing and Google's tracking demographic, psychographic, event-based, whatever. So I want to take that individual and say, this happened with the individual. The conversion value rules to me are nuts because it's cheating. It's Google going, hey, you know, the average buyer buys five bucks and there's three dimensions, right? It's location, audience, device. So you can come in and say, the average person buys $5, but I know that if somebody buys from New York, they're only, they're only going to buy once. If they buy from California, and I'm using a random example here, it's actually Google's example in their training was the New York, California delineation. If they buy from California, they're actually worth double. So now you're going to say 2x. The issue with that, there's a bunch of issues with this in my mind. The issue with that is 
first of all, you're not giving Google the information on the individual user that's increasing that value, which means the whole, the whole power behind Google is this, you know, tens of millions of data points on individual prospects. And what Google is asking for is they're asking you to cheat. They're asking you to say, roughly speaking, generally speaking, based on these three really broad dimensions, which I don't even know why device is in there, by the way, based on these really, and I, I mean, I can kind of come up with some use cases maybe, but for the most part, it feels, it feels a little thin. This particular prospect is worth more to me. And I feel like what Google's doing is just asking for like blanket permission to spend more. Uh, yes. And I think we're on the same page again, but I'll take a slightly opposing viewpoint, which will lead us to okay. the same conclusion, I think. So absolutely agree. If you know how to do offline conversion import and value adjust, that's the right way to do it because that's you know connecting that one action to all of these millions of data points Google has about the users. But the reality is that you know offline conversion import, value adjustments, they've been around for many, many years, and many advertisers still don't use them because they're somewhat technically challenging to implement. Now, value rules, which literally just came out of beta here in the late summer of 2021, that one is easy because like you said, if you have a gut feeling that's like, hey, New York better than California, okay, like let me put some value on that. And it goes to the fundamental point that, like I said before, not all conversions are created equal. And here's again the human element, right? So we're not asking you to look at, do people in New York convert at a higher percentage than those in California? No, we're asking you, If you had $5 to spend and you could get one conversion and you'd either get the same conversion from New York or from California and they bought the same amount of stuff, which of these two do you choose? Okay, that's the only question. And now you're like, well, yeah, actually, I did look at my business data and customers in California way better than those in New York. So let me say, Google, I'll take the California one. How do you do that? Well, you increase the value that you report from it so that the machine learning system, all else being equal, says, okay, well, California, New York, I'll pick the California one. And that's really what it's about. So it's a bit of a stopgap intermediate solution that I do recommend advertisers give a try. But if you can, yes, go to the next level, go OCT, go value adjust. Yeah. It's funny when you see something that's as precise as Google in terms of data acquisition, put a feature out there that basically says, just guess, give it a shot. You know what I mean? Like whatever you think is just give it a shot. Guessing, the guessing is so important, right? Because, and you guys must face this all the time. Like, oh my God, you go into a client meeting and it's like, well, we have micro conversions, right? So, so so you're struggling as a business to get the thing that you really, really, really want, which is more sales, more profit. And by the way, we haven't even talked about profit, but when we talk about target ROAS, like that's not profit. That's return on ad spend. That has nothing to do with your margins, right? So you as a smart human right. set different T ROASs based on different margins of products. Like that's a human thing that you bring to the equation and then the machine can do its bidding. And by the way, when it does bidding, it's really not that different from how you used to do CPC bidding calculations in your head, except their calculations are more complicated, more in-depth. Probably a little more accurate. than. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, right? Uh, and faster too. But at the end of the day, like we still have to put in human inputs as to like what do we really value, okay? I, I don't care about ROAS. I care about profit. How do I get profit? ROAS is sort of my lever to get to that. Right? And I totally forgot where I was originally going before I took this whole sidetrack. No, so I keep poking at you too, and I got to maybe stop doing that because you've been so kind to be here. I, I do want to say that I've, we've used your tool, Optimizer, super elegant solution. I was on an inter- interview with you on your town hall, which happens, what, once a month? every? Yeah, so we try to do it uh, twice a month. Uh, it's uh, PPC Town Hall. It's on YouTube. It's a live stream. Uh, it's really, you were an awesome guest, so I'd love to have you back at some point. 
But uh, but yeah, and it really thrives too on user engagement. So users watch it live and ask us questions and take us down whatever rabbit hole exists that week. Yeah, well, it was great, great content. So if you're listening to this and you want more of Frederick, go check out his, his town hall. But you interviewed a guy who I really liked and he's running, I've got almost 50 employees for my 160 clients. This guy had, I forget what it was. I think it was 300 clients and three employees or mm-hmm. something like that, right? Like the, I have the numbers wrong, but the ratio right more or less. And he was using Optimizer as the backbone for the whole thing. And after speaking to him directly, like if I had heard that, I'd be like, oh, they're a bunch of set it and forget it campaigns or reporting vanity metrics. But after talking to him, I'm like, okay, I think he's doing this the right way. So there's something compelling there. And I'm not trying to push your software too, too hard. What I am trying to do though, is say that you're clearly onto something that I think is worth pursuing. But do you think it's accessible to small advertisers? Or do you think they need an agency to use the software? Well, we're coming out with a solution that's going to be a little bit more accessible to the smaller advertisers at a lower price point and a little bit more suggestion-based. So our tool right now is really good if you know what you're doing and you know what you want to do, but you just want to do it faster and better. Optimizer excels at that. If you're a small advertiser and you're not really focused on marketing, but it's just something you know you should be doing, look for a solution from us later in this year. But I can kind of bring it back to maybe where we started this conversation, like humans plus machines better than machines alone. Like that was my original book. The the new book, I came to this realization that if you automate stuff as a human, you often spend as much time installing scripts, making sure scripts are running, doing settings, like monitoring that the machine is not breaking, figuring out all the new stuff, like what is this whole value rules thing that Google just launched about? Right. So it all gets super time consuming. And then I was like, but many of these things, like the monitoring, the setting of different targets based on like my profit goals as opposed to my TROS goals, that can all be automated. And that doesn't need to be machine learning. That doesn't need to be complicated stuff. That could be something like a smart tool like Optimizer, or it could be something that exists in the Google interface, like an automated rule or an ad script that somebody's already written. Right. And you bring these lightweight, smart pieces of technology to your business to control the machine and give the machine better information. And so it's, it's sort of that best of humans plus machines, but I'm not asking for humans time. I'm using for, I'm asking for humans insight. And if that's automated by you, that's great. And it's, I mean, I'm kind of hearing that Kasim, you're a little skeptical of Google sometimes and that's totally fine. Yeah. I think they're the, here's the thing is I have this really weird, like I'm obsessed with it. My my two-year-old son used to come up to me and ask me a question. If I said, I don't know, he goes, can you doodle it? Like they, my, my, my wife makes fun of me because <laughs> of how obsessed I am with Google. And, and I think if you really start to consider what Google has done for us from an information mapping standpoint, the fact that every single answer is within a fraction of a second from you and what that can do for humanity. Like I think it's, I think it's amazing. I think it's a gift. It's like a modern miracle, truly. But then... It's also the Leviathan. It's also going to eat us alive. And, and not just because of ads, because of the way that the information ends up being, it's peer reviewed. So you don't get the best answer. You get the best answer for you. That's dangerous. And it's polarizing. So yeah, I have a lot of, I have a lot of opinions on Google. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Frederick, but. No, and, and that's, that's a good point. And I think the more that we can talk about these things and get people educated about how it all really works and what you need to be careful about, that's great. And, and so, but, but then ultimately, like, okay, you're skeptical of Google in some ways for as much as it's been like beneficial to the world. Let's have a healthy amount of skepticism. And what I'm advocating is that us as humans, our job is to be the counterpoint to Google, right? Like kind of like steer it the right way 
when we talked about spending $20,000 to get it to learn something, right? How do we put in those bumpers to get it to where it needs to be? But these are all things that we as humans, we can have our like little knight in shining armor automation that oversees this big dragon that's Google that's, that's doing amazing stuff that we could never do because it's way more powerful, right? So let's take advantage of that, but let's also control it. And that's what this new book is all about. It's like, how do you use this concept called automation layering, where you build smart automations that layer on top of Google's really sophisticated, complicated stuff and get it to ultimately do better for you. Yeah, but you only get to drive the dragon. You only get to direct the dragon for as long as the dragon wants you to. The day that thing wakes up and decides, you know what? I don't want to wear this collar any longer. Like that's that's what I'm afraid of is we build, we hand Google the keys to the kingdom. And then one day they're like, oh, we have quite literally all the power, all the visibility, and we don't really need y'all. Amazon's doing it now. Amazon is replicating products. Have y'all heard of this? It's unbelievably nefarious. You're a retailer on Amazon. You create your own thing. You invent a new type of, I don't know what, uh, blue light limiting sunglasses. You start selling on Amazon. You're crushing life. And Amazon goes, oh, great idea, kids. Produces their own, brings it in. It becomes Amazon's recommended product. And now they just crush some small business and, and squeezed you right out of it. Like it, I feel like Google as an organization, and God forgive me for saying so naive, but I feel like they've actually been really high integrity most of the time. But it only takes like one regime change. You know, one shift in the CEO, one major stock adjustment, and now all of a sudden the board of directors is leaning the wrong way, and Google is off doing what Amazon is doing now. That's that's what scares me. And I'm asking you a bunch of questions, Frederick, that are unfair. It's not like you and I are going to be able to even stop this, but I think it's something worth bringing up. No, and listen, like I was the AdWords evangelist at Google, so like my job was to <laughs> have these fun this conversations. And yes, to Google, you got to get more nasty. Horses through Sorry. my veins. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Go ahead, Fred. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I don't even know where we That's left. I've been monopolizing the conversation. Ralph, what grenades do you want to throw at Fred while we've got him? You know, I mean, what I hear from Fred as far as like how AI works with the human is you have to know your numbers too. You have to know what metrics are actually most important to you. And it's not all about ROAS. It is about profit. It's about the conversion metric that's most meaningful to you. Like for us, we have leads and then we have qualified leads qualified leads. We really don't care about leads, but we optimize for leads because we know at a certain point, like those leads, 30, 40% are going to be qualified. So we sort of factor that in, but we're doing that because we're trying to juice the algorithm based upon our spend to get more data. So what I'm wanting hearing for you is like, I should be optimizing for qualified leads more so. And then also not necessarily for ROAS for all our customers, but for profitability. And I know there's a gross profit column that's actually in AdWords, which is still in beta, which is kind of cool too. But like with that in mind, a lot of the things that we talk about here, and we did an episode specifically on this, like how much can you afford to pay for a customer? And we'll have to link to that in the show notes, uh, Kasim. But that comes back to like business basics. So these are all just tools in which to grow a business. And if you're going to let the algorithm help grow your business with giving it incorrect data on what's most important to your business, shame on you. That's <laughs> not Google, right? So like, talk to us a little bit more about that because most of the folks that are listening here, I think are just all about like, oh, I got to get my ROAS, I got to get my CPA, but like, why am I losing money every single month? You know, why am I in the red? So talk to us about that and how you can use the platform in order to truly 
enable businesses to grow utilizing the right metrics. Yeah, no, and I think you said it all right there, Ralph. It's it's about like what is the true value and the thing you truly care about. And, and let's be honest, right? And let's communicate that in some way. So in, in the new book, we have this example of a, a battery or a, an auto parts sale company. And they know that on days when it freezes, that's when a lot of customers will come in to buy new car batteries because car batteries tend to die at the first frost. This is a signal that Google most likely does not really know about. And we talked a lot about Google knows things about its users, but to what degree does it understand businesses, right? And and patterns within specific businesses. It's very unlikely that Google looks at the weather impact on that specific category of products. And so in in terms of smart bidding, it may simply miss that opportunity, which is literally a one-day opportunity to sell a lot of car batteries. And it's like, as an advertiser, how do you go into the system and do you pick a seasonality adjustment or do you go in and you actually say, well, my TCPA, my target cost per acquisition, I'm willing to double it because I know I'll make up for it in a short-term doubling of conversion rate, which means effectively I'll still be at the CPA I actually wanted to be at. So it, it's all these little tricks in the system, in the platform, and how do you put them together? And so I, I equate PPC specialists and humans, like one of the roles they play is the, is the, the doctor. It's about prescribing the right solutions. It's knowing about the interactions of the different things that you're going to have, right? So if you're going to be on automated bidding, are you using last click attribution? And if you are, that's really bad because last click attribution undervalues everything before it. So it completely skews the type of traffic you're going to keep buying. And so it's like within the platform, whether it's Optimizer or Google Ads, there's so many things to understand and kind of put them together in the right way to build these really amazing automations. And then when it comes to your example that that was thrown out there earlier, but lifetime value, right? Lifetime value usually doesn't happen in the 90-day window that you get to restate your conversions. And by the way, value adjustments are like a 55-day window. Offline conversion import is a 90-day window. So this is all too short to really do a good job. But Ralph, like you were... Yeah, so when you said offline conversion importing was a 90-day window, I didn't know that. And we've never exceeded that, obviously, because most of our clients are small. So like it's it's generally within the first month, either they convert or they don't and clients don't give us the data regardless. It's very binary. But that feels like a massive loss in the ability to buttress your data. Exactly. And so here's how you get around that. So like Ralph was saying, he knows that of the leads, say 30, 40% are qualified leads. But which 30 or 40%? And by the way, the reason that a lot of advertisers like working with high volume conversions like the form fill is because there's just more there, right? It's, it's nice to put it in the report for your client. It also helps the machine, at least in some sort of broad directionality, get to something faster, which is why we like having micro conversions. So even if you put something on, it's like, hey, somebody looked at my white paper. Somebody played an important video on my website. Like that's a pretty good signal that we think and we can actually equate to later on. These tend to be more highly engaged users, more likely to start up a trial of the software that we have. So let's actually put that in as a conversion and just tell Google, get me more of that action because generally that leads to the next action. But now when it comes to something like lifetime value, well, what if you could say every night I download all of my leads and I've asked people a number of things. I know what city they're in. I know what kind of company they work for. I've probably enhanced the data by looking at the company size, the company vertical. Now, let me run an internal correlation study and say, oh, well, it tends to be that companies between like 25 and 50 employees, that's like the sweet spot for us. I'm just making something up, right? But all of those leads, I'm going to score higher in the system and I'm going to tell Google 
to get me more of those, even though maybe it takes me six months to start to close these deals because we're selling something expensive. By the way, optimizers are not expensive, so these are not my examples, um, right? But if it was something expensive, you have these long windows. But how can you inform the system within that 90-day window of the probabilities? Because we're talking about probabilities. We don't always have to talk about absolutes. And, and that's the other thing, Kasim, when you were saying, why is Google always asking us to make like these relative value adjustments or like to tell us the real value of something? Advertisers are bad at saying, what is the real value? Like, what is the lifetime value? I mean, hmm. uh, to a large degree, I'm guessing, but I can tell you that a lifetime value of a customer in the United States is higher than someone from India. Okay. And now if I can just do a relative skewing of those two towards the Google system by a little bit, I say, hey, US is worth just a tiny bit more than India. Okay. I get more traffic from there. I look at my metrics. I'm happy. Things are getting better. Let me boost it a little bit more and let me incrementally keep boosting it. And I don't really care that I don't have a precise value, a precise measure, because that's not what it's about. It's just about, you know, pushing the system towards the right thing over time. Yeah. And what I like about the overarching narrative that we've been pushing, Frederick, is it is humans plus machine, which is the thing that scares me the day that it's not. Man, you're just the smartest guy in the whole wide world. I really appreciate you letting me, you know, we're beating up on you here, I realize. And that's an uncomfortable place to be. So thanks for putting up with it. How do people get a hold of you if they want to hear more? Yeah, so uh, at Silicon Valleys on Twitter, recently started... Uh, Stop, we need a pause. What? That is the best handle ever. Are you kidding me? That is the Thank best. You. Oh my God. Silicon Valley. You have to know how to spell your last name though. That's yeah. The... <laughs> yeah, V-A-L-L-A-E-Y-S. We'll drop that in the show notes. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, and then uh, check out Optimizer. That's another difficult one to spell, O-P-T-M-Y-Z-R. Don't forget the Y, right? There's no E in optimizer. <laughs> yeah, that's how people get a hold of me. And, uh, you know, uh, once the conference circuit picks up again, I love speaking at conferences. So uh, come say hello to me if you attend one of my sessions. But, yeah, it's been, been really fun getting uh, hammered here by you guys. Oh, we were so easy on you. my Tuesday mornings exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you did a great job, man. This is awesome. Thanks for coming on, Frederick. Appreciate you. So uh, for everything that we mentioned here in this week's show, head on over to digitalmarketer.com forward slash podcast. This has been episode 322. Fred Valets, thank you for coming on here. The inventor of the internet. We're just going to call you that from here on out. Oh my God, Big Surf is going to beat up on me next. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, check us out over at digitalmarketer.com. We'll get all the links in the show notes as well as where you can get a hold of Fred. Until next week, everyone, for my co-host, Kasa Maslam. See ya. Peace.